Hi, it's Holly here, and we are together again at the second location. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a murderer that I only recently found out about. He was a truly terrifying man who raped and murdered a young mother and her three small children. And once I started reading about him, I couldn't believe that I had never heard of him before. Because after he was executed in Indiana in 1981, his foster mother, Mary Carr, made a statement to the press that her foster son had confessed to her that he had, quote, left a string of bodies across five states. His name was Stephen Judy, and his total number of victims is unknown. Like so many others, Judy was a sexually motivated killer, and many of his crimes involved a sexual assault. While he committed numerous crimes, like the variety across the board, it's robbery, shoplifting, car theft, Judy himself admitted that if he stopped a woman, he was going to rape her. The man was actually diagnosed as a sexual psychopath while still a teenager. I mean, he's in the vanguard of being sexually deviant. I mean, he started young. He raped a neighbor lady at knife point when he was just 13. But the crime that placed Judy in the electric chair was truly horrific and cruel. Using Alanis Morissette's definition of irony, ironically, Judy's foster dad, Bob Carr, had just bailed out Judy out of jail the week before his final crime. He had been in jail on charges of armed robbery. At 23, Judy had spent much of his life in some type of institution, sometimes as a mental patient, sometimes as a prisoner. His last crime took place in the early morning hours of April 28, 1978. Judy was driving along I-465 in Indiana when a lady driving her three small children to the babysitters caught his eye. Now, when I first read that, I thought, how the hell do you notice another driver and decide to attack them? Hell, I regularly notice other drivers at all. And then I Google image searched the victim and I understood instantly. Terry Chastine was a truly beautiful woman and she would be noticed anywhere even just driving down the road. And while Terry was only 21, she had jam-packed a lot into her life so far. She was divorced and the mother of three children, five-year-old Misty Ann, four-year-old Steve, almost three-year-old Mark. Terry and her kids lived with her longtime boyfriend and it was his car that she was driving that morning. She had left that morning sometime around six to take her kids to the babysitters so she could go to work in the produce section of a Marsh's grocery store. As she's driving, Judy catches her attention and motions to Terry that something was wrong with her car. Terry pulled over, and Judy pulled over as well. Terry had no idea that the man, who she thought was a good Samaritan, would murder her and all three of her children within the hour. Sadly, little Miss Deanne, the oldest, she was five, had a conversation with her grandmother just a few months before the little girl was murdered. As they drove past her funeral home that was packed with cars for a viewing, Misty asked her grandma about all the cars, and her grandma explained about people getting old and dying. Sweet little Misty replied, well, that won't happen to us, will it, grandma, because we're new. Yeah, Stephen and Judy murdered that little girl when she was five years old, so... Judy's got Terry pulled over. He tells her that one of her rear tires was wobbly and he offered to tighten it up for her. Oh, what a hero. But of course, her tire wasn't actually loose. This was just a ruse to get Terry to pull over. Terry gives Judy a wrench and he Marcel Marceau's some imaginary tire repairs fucking miming all over back there. Then for some reason, Judy opens the hood of the car. But Terry doesn't think anything of this, which is super weird to me because the problem with her car was supposed to be a tire issue. There's absolutely no need to get under the hood for that. That. But it's the 1970s and women were much less suspicious than they are today. I mean, people were still hitchhiking. Okay, so while he's under the hood, Judy removed a coil wire from the engine, ensuring that the car wouldn't start. So while he's under the hood, Judy removed coil wire from the engine, thus ensuring that the car wouldn't start. Now, some accounts claim that after Judy fixed her tire, Terry and Judy got back into their respective cars. 
but that Terry noticed something was wrong with her emergency brake and she asked Judy to help her again. At this point, he pops the hood and pulls the out the coil wire. Now, this makes more sense as to why Terry, you know, she didn't question Judy being under the hood. But I tend not to believe this version of events because it has Judy letting Terry leave when clearly he never had any intent of letting her go without him hurting her. I think there is this discrepancy is due to early reporting that Terry actually had a flat tire and Judy had stopped to help her. But this account is incorrect because Judy actually testifies at his trial that he tricked her into thinking something was wrong with her car. And she actually didn't have any car trouble until he tampered with her car. So if he tricked her into pulling over, he had intentions of hurting her from the start. I don't think she asked for help a second time because I don't think she was ever giving the option to actually leave. But anyway, it really doesn't matter. The point is Judy convinced Terry that something was wrong with her car. And while pretending to help, he actually disabled her car and then offered to give the family a lift in his truck. Now, Terry loads the three kids into Judy's truck and they set off with their murderer. Judy had promised to take Terry to the nearest gas station. But when Terry realized that Judy wasn't going to take her where she wanted to go, she frantically motioned to a man in another vehicle. This other driver didn't understand what Terry was waving at him and what she was trying to communicate. And he just drove on. But later, when he saw the news of the murders, he came forward and described the truck that Terry was in. I mean, you think of being that man realizing that that's why that lady was waving at you like that. That's truly frightening, isn't it? So Judy drove to White Lick Creek and ordered everyone out of the truck. And Judy sent the children away for a little walk. Because this monster, he wanted some time alone with their mother. He ripped apart Terry's work uniform and bound her with strips of fabric made from her own clothing. Then he sexually assaulted Terry. When the children heard their mother's screams, they ran to her side. The children yelled at Judy. The children yelled at Judy as he strangled their mother in front of them. And then he threw her lifeless body into the creek. But Judy wasn't going to leave any witnesses this time. And one by one, he threw the screaming children into the stream. Later, Judy would recall seeing one child standing in the middle of the water. But all three children would be found dead later that same day. With everyone disposed of, Judy tried to destroy all of his footprints by dragging a branch over the ground, and then he got back into his truck and drove away. Before returning the truck to his foster parents' home, he stopped at like an OG juggalo. Judy bought a bottle of orange fago. Only two and a half hours after she was murdered, mushroom hunters would find Terry's nude, lifeless body, and they immediately alert the authorities. The creek was searched, and the somber scene took an even darker turn when Misty Ann's body was discovered. The search was expanded along the creek, and then, as they're looking through the water and the banks of the creek, someone cries out, we found two more. Everyone in Indiana wondered what kind of man would commit such a terrible crime. So let's talk a little bit about Stephen Judy. Like most sexual sadists, his life was miserable from its beginning. Judy was raised by alcoholics that flew into rages beyond what most people had ever seen or even heard about. It was a wild household full of kids. There were five and the home was run by abusive drunks. Judy's father, Vernon, was frequently unemployed and often in jail, but when he did work, it was in construction. Now, Judy's mother, Myrtle, she was a good-looking waitress who loved to flirt, and it was reported that she could be easily picked up. And that's about the nicest way to call somebody a slut that I have ever heard. Vernon was a violent man, and he often got into fights, usually with Myrtle and her numerous boyfriends. Myrtle had to be hospitalized on multiple occasions after Vernon had beat her. But she didn't seem to let that slow her down with her extramarital exploits. With her extramarital exploits, once when Judy's father caught his wife with another man to punish her, the father killed the family dog in front of his young son. That rage was understandable. I mean, he caught his wife fucking another guy. But it's just completely misdirected. 
What the hell did the dog have to do with it? Vernon butchered the dog, leaving pieces of its body scattered about the porch for the kids to find. And I think that's step one right there in raising a sexual sadist right there. Butcher the family dog in front of them and have weird sex stuff going on in the house. Okay. So another time, Judy recalled his mother pulling a gun on his father. I mean, it was just chaos in that family. It's just 50 shades of fucked up with these people. While Vernon was in jail, Myrtle would have her boyfriends over, and apparently they would hump right there in front of the kids in the family room. When Vernon was released, he would beat the kids and interrogate them about Myrtle's sexual exploits. About Myrtle's sexual exploits which they knew all about because they had seen them live in action in the living room. This would make Vernon explode, and more beatings ensued for both Myrtle and the children. I mean, really, asshole. Don't ask questions when you can't handle the fucking answers. You know Myrtle's fucking around, because she always is. So let's just go find yourself a new Myrtle, okay? When his mother was working, the kids were babysat by Judy's older sister. But when mom was home, she often secured Stephen to the clothesline with a dog leash. You know, as any mom would. The parents' relationship was so toxic. Vernon would do anything to get back at Myrtle for getting around. Vernon would tamper with her car, poking holes in the radiator and sugar in the gas tank. To solve this, Myrtle didn't stop fucking around. Instead, she would have young Steven stand guard over the vehicle at night. Great problem solving there, Myrtle. Just can't keep it in your pants, can you, gal? The pair even got divorced a couple of times, but they always would remarry each other again. Seriously, it is reported that this happened more than once. They just couldn't stay away from each other. At the age of 10, Stephen found his parents stash of porn. Not much later, he began experimenting sexually with a stepsister. And I want to say, I want to say this, like, okay, finding your parents stash of porn, I don't consider that a big deal. But I do in this family because I could only imagine that their porn would be, like, super freaky. Like, their porn, mm-mm. Someone has sex in a living room in front of all their kids. Yeah, she's not into normal stuff. So when, when she wants to let loose and really go wild and explore, I mean, how much more can she let loose? You know, so yeah. So I can only imagine the porn he found was like truly horrific shit. But anyway, by the age of 12, Stephen was drinking alcohol. Honestly, in that house, I don't know how he held out so long. The point is Judy was exposed to some insane shit when he was young. And the first step to raising a sexual sadist is having a terrible childhood and a complete lack of ability to change these horrible things. Children that grew up in horrible environments, they feel they're powerless over. You know, later in life, they might seek power. And these assholes, they get that power by hurting women. Judy himself would start acting out sexually when he was 10. Yeah, I said 10. He did some entry-level perverting by peeping into windows to catch women undressing, but he progressed quickly. He would follow older high school girls around and then attack them. It was referred to as molesting, but that seems like the wrong term for when a 10-year-old gropes a 16-year-old. Hell, I mean, it happens so rarely. There may not be an actual name for it. It's terrible and fucking weird. He was 10. But he didn't stop at violently second-basing teenage girls. When he was 13, Judy posed as a Boy Scout selling tickets door-to-door, -door, and he went to a neighbor's house. He got inside her home and attacked the woman. After he raped the lady, he stabbed the woman 18 times with his pocket knife. When the blade broke, he hit her over the head with a hatchet fracturing her skull and sever, almost severing her, no, I think he did sever her finger as she tried to fight off the blows from the hatchet. I don't know how, but she survived and was able to identify her attacker as Stephen Judy, the neighbor kid, and this attack was brutal. The victim had to have brain surgery, open heart surgery, and abdominal surgery, but she survived and she would testify about the attack during Judy's murder trial. 
Now, because of his age, he served only six months in a juvenile detention facility. Now, after six months inside, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital where he received his diagnosis of being a sexual psychopath. So this happened when he was 13. He's diagnosed like that. I mean, I'm laughing because holy shit, this guy should not have been loose on society. He should have been, um, I don't know, he should have been cracked down on a little harder a little earlier. I mean, you'll see as he continues on here, the terrible shit he does. But he would remain there in the psychiatric hospital as a patient for a little over two years. Medical notes about Judy revealed that the hospital thought that Judy had recovered from his, quote, emotional problems. Okay, now I'm going to take an issue here because clearly they were wrong. But first off, is being a sexual psychopath merely an emotional problem? Seems like it would run a little deeper than that. I thought anxiety would be an emotional problem, not being a violent rapist. Second off, does one really ever recover from being a sexual psychopath? Seems like that would be like a lifelong diagnosis. Anyway, the hospital recommends that Judy be sent to the Indiana Boys School, a correctional facility for kids. But that's not what happens at all. Instead, at 16, Judy was released completely. He was free to continually go about his life and sexually assault young ladies willy-nilly. But when he was released, he didn't return home to his drunken parents. He was placed in the care of young foster parents, Bob and Mary Carr. Okay, now this strikes me as odd just because Mary is only 11 years older than Judy. And she's his foster mom, which is just a little bit weird. The Carrs had been fostering Judy while he was a mental patient. Apparently, the father, Bob, had a younger brother, well, wait, a younger half-brother, who was a fellow patient and friend of Judy's. The family had young children, and they were never told about Judy's violent past or his diagnosis of being a sexual psychopath. Okay, I want to say, that's bad on the state right there, because this is a family taking this 16-year-old into their home, and they got little kids, and he's a sexual psychopath. So that's bad on the state for not telling them. You don't just, you know, set a sexual nutbag loose on an unsuspecting family, but also, shouldn't the cars have been a little extra suspicious because the court record said they started fostering him when he was a mental patient? So, like, you got to dig a little deeper there when you find out the person you're bringing into your home is a mental patient. I mean, that's a red flag if I ever saw one always ask for a diagnosis before you move a mental patient into your home. I mean, life hack right there. That's a good tip. It seems like the details of the violent rape were glossed over and the cars were left with the impression that Judy had a terrible relationship with his mother, which was true. I mean, he described his mom, his own mom as sexy and he'd seen her hump before. So that's got some awkwardness there. And the hospital also said that he'd had a nervous breakdown and attacked a woman. I just love the loosey-goosey term nervous breakdown. He didn't have a nervous breakdown and attack a woman. He chose at the age of 13 to rape a neighbor and then I would say attempt to murder her because he did stab her 18 times with a knife and then attack her with a hatchet. So, um, yeah, he raped and attempted murdered. Now, that seems like that's not a nervous breakdown to me. But then again, not a doctor. But I still feel like maybe I could do a little better job than the ones at that hospital. <laughs> so, oh, look at me being so confident. But anyway, the cars were very good to Judy. But really for Judy, it was too late for him to be redeemed. Judy had a great relationship with the Carr family and they stayed loyal to each other through his trial and execution. Mary said that her foster son had acted like a gentleman towards her family. Judy played with the little kids and helped take care of them. But he also drank a lot and tried to seduce every babysitter they ever had. So yeah, there were some issues. I mean, Judy had to drop out of high school because he cut off a girl's halter top. Yeah, 
he just doesn't ever stop, you know? And that's why I think chalking this up just to a nervous breakdown, uh, it, well, he consistently has terrible behavior, is uh, minimalizing at its uh, finest. Okay, so he's cutting off girls straps to their halter top. He makes this obscene phone calls. I mean, this fucker is just red flagging all around town. But his foster parents tried to help him and he was hospitalized again. So it's not that these people weren't trying to do the best they could for Steve and Judy, because I really think that Mary and Bob Carr and their four kids, I think they love Steve and Judy very much. And I think that's something that he had never experienced before in his life. Any level of stability, any level of real family-like love, not maybe your mom's gonna hump you type love. And I just feel very bad that he couldn't have been exposed to a positive home environment at some time in his life before he was 16, before he was 10, I guess, and started really acting out sexually. But that's not what happened for him. So I'm not making excuses for him about how his life was, but I will tell you, I have never seen somebody that does the terrible, violent things that he does to women and to children and to have them have had a good home life in their childhood. So it's not an excuse, but it's an explanation. And you know why people do these things. And now you can say, hey, not everybody had a terrible childhood. People are terribly abused. and They don't end up doing these things but everybody's different. You take people as they are. So his situation was terrible and this is how he reacted to it. Maybe you wouldn't have reacted that way. Maybe you would have reacted differently. Maybe I would have reacted differently. Yes, it very much could be the case, but this is how he reacted. And that's important to note. We're all different. We all have different coping skills. And in fact, when you say, if I was in that environment, I wouldn't have done this, but you wouldn't be you if you were raised in that environment. You would be a completely different person than you are now. And that's the end of nature versus nurture. Okay, so anyway, he was in and out of juvenile detention centers, but at 18, he got a girlfriend and moved with her to Texas. But this relationship ended and he returned to Indiana. Before long, he moved to New Orleans where he was arrested for rape. He wasn't convicted, but he did spend some time in jail there. When he was released, he would return to Indiana to, you know, continue terrorizing women. He got a job as a truck driver and one night he saw a 17-year-old girl sitting alone in a car. Stephen opened her car door ordering the girl to slide over, but somehow she managed to exit the car as Judy entered. She tried to run, but he caught up to her, tosses her on the ground, and punched her about 50 times in the face. As he tried to strangle her, she is able to cry out for help, and an ambulance driver hears her screams and her pleas and ran to her aid. Judy, this fucker, he sees the man approaching and Judy just takes that one last second before he dashes off. Judy smashes his face into her fist one last time before he fled. I mean, he just had to do it. 50 wasn't enough. This fucker had to punch that poor girl 51 times in the face. The girl survives, but she has a broken nose, black eyes, bruised up, busted up face, but she survives and recovers physically from the attack. But Judy was arrested for this and convicted. He was sentenced to three years in state prison. Upon his arrival, he was promptly raped by another prisoner. Now, I actually read that this rape, it made Judy angry. Now, I don't know if a sentence like that ever needed to be written. I mean, I really just assumed that. I mean, really, Judy's 
I mean, he's used to doing the raping. It isn't like he's going to like this role reversal. Now, this prison experience may have influenced Judy's decision to seek the death penalty after he was convicted for the murder of Terry and her kids. Because I don't think he wanted to spend, he's only 23 years old when he's convicted, the next 50 years getting raped in prison like he did in this brief experience. But while he was able to realize personally, he did not want that happening to him. He wasn't able to get you know, he's not going to be able to apply that to his actions and be like, hey, I've been raping ladies and, you know, I was enjoying myself doing it. But now this dude raped me and I realized like how fucking terrible that is. I should stop this. No, 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 no. Judy, Judy doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't come to that aha moment. He just realizes that he doesn't like being raped. So good on him. So he's some awareness of self there, you know, thinks he knows what he likes and doesn't like. Okay. Eventually, when he was released after serving two years for that assault, remember he's sentenced to three, serves about two. His birth mother met him at the prison gates with a six pack of beer. Mama knew exactly what this thirsty young rapist needed. Immediately, the mom and son duo began to tie one on. But Judy wanted to see his foster family as well. And this angered Judy's birth mother, Myrtle. And an argument ensued. And basically, she ends up storming out of Judy's life, leaving Judy with an unanswered question. The question that he never got to ask his birth mother was whether she would make out with him. Now, I got that from Bette Nunn's book, Burn, Judy, Burn, which is also the book that had the great quote about how being raped made Stephen Judy angry. And it seems like this, you know, will my mother make out with me? To me, that seems like it's a private thought of Judy's, you know, that while he was imprisoned, he thought frequently of his mother, as one normally would. But Judy frequently thought about fucking his own mother, as one abnormally would. Uh, I don't even know how to put that. But yeah, so I wonder how the hell does Betnan get this information? Because I think even Steve and Judy would realize that this is freaky as fuck and keep this information to himself. But it has been stated that Judy wanted to fuck his own mother, so it's out there. I mean, I just don't know how it got out there, but it's out there. Now, even though his foster family seemed to think that he was a good guy, Judy truly did live a life full of crime. By the age of 23, he had committed 200 burglaries. 24 car thefts, 200 episodes of shoplifting, 12 to 16 rapes, and at least four murders. And I'm just going to say, that's a lot of crime right there. But I really feel for the Carr family. They, they loved Judy, and he really let them down. But they still loved him and stood by him, which I think is noble. It isn't easy to be loyal to a murdery rapist. If he had parents like this from the start, I think Judy's life would have taken a completely different direction, and Terry and her kids would never have been murdered. So, Judy is enjoying his freedom after being released from prison for the attack on the teenager who was, you know, just minding her own business, sitting in her car, when Judy comes along and starts punching the fuck out of her face. Well, within four months of being released, Judy attacks again. This fucker just does not hit pause on his sexual assaults. That's why I think he has potentially an ass load of unknown victims. I mean, he is four months out of prison and he is caught attempting to rape yet again. Judy spots a young woman sitting in her car alone. That's fucking dangerous around this asshole. And it's early morning and she is waiting for the post office to open, minding her own business. But of course, Judy isn't going to leave her alone. The young woman is described as a sexy bleached blonde to which I ask how the hell do they know that she has bleached blonde hair and beyond that what does it fucking matter for really but Judy is up to no good so he opens the driver door to her car pulls out a knife and orders her to slide over that's a signature move on his part Judy starts the car and speeds out of the parking lot 
Understandably, the woman is crying as Judy orders her around. Judy, he's like really feeling it during this attack because he asks his victim if she thinks he is going to rape her. She replied that she hoped not. In the fucking worst slice of poetry ever written, which is, you know, a high standard in my opinion because I think fucking poetry sucks, you know, except for dirty limericks. But anyway, fucking Judy utters this line. I don't get my kicks from raping chicks. And I just wonder how long he held that line in his back pocket. Because he sure shit didn't come up with that spur of the moment. Also, it's a lie. It's a fucking lie. Because that's clearly how this asshat gets his kicks. Liar. So, wait. Let's add that to the list. He's a rapist, a murderer, and a liar. Maybe we should start with liar. Because I think it's the least. I think it's... Many of us are liars. Not the other two things. But anyway... I, just, I hate that. Like, you know he was, like, so proud of himself when he's, I don't get my kicks from raping chicks. It's gross. As the car sped up, the young lady created her own opportunity to get free. She grabbed Judy's hand that he was holding the knife in, and the steering wheel turned as the car is going fast. So it spins out, and the two are struggling with each other. Now, Judy managed to cut himself with his own knife. You know, the way a moron would. Way to go, asshole. So he drops the knife, but grabs the lady's hair and starts smashing her face against the door. Just keep reminding yourself, as you listen to this, at the end of this story, this guy is dead. And that's a good thing. He, he just doesn't stop with attacks on women. And it's disgusting that he's allowed, keeps getting back out to do this shit again and again. But as he beats her head against the door, she grabs the latch, opening the door and flying out of the car onto the pavement. Immediately, she jumps up like an action movie hero and runs across the highway and another car actually stops for her, which is nice because we hear all these cases where the cars don't stop for people that need help. Remember Mary Vincent? Someone saw that poor arm, half-armless woman standing alongside a roadway and just blew right by her. But anyway, someone stopped for her. Judy, well, he just drives off in her car and abandons it somewhere. But the victim is able to identify her attacker. Now, sources aren't clear on about how she did this, but I would guess as a noted local pervert, Judy was included in a lot, like a police lineup, in-person photo, not sure. But if I was doing a lineup in the Indiana area of, you know, people snatching ladies out of cars and beating the shit out of them and probably trying to rape them, I mean, I'm, I'm getting that guy in one of those six spots. Yeah, Steve Judy, oh, it could be him. Wait, it is him. Now, when Judy goes to trial on kidnapping and car theft charges, the jury can't return a verdict. Apparently, there was one lone holdout on the jury that didn't believe the victim's story. So it was a hung jury. And instead of retrying the entire case, the prosecutors offered a plea bargain where they dropped the kidnapping charges. And Judy was only convicted of car theft. And basically, he got time served. Now, I want to call out that piece of shit juror because... What about Stephen Judy makes him look like he didn't commit this crime? It's exactly like the attack that he just had got out of prison for four months ago. He saw a pretty young lady alone in a parked car and attacked her. But that one juror just didn't believe the victim. And this is why rape was so underreported for decades. Because when you did report it, you went through hell just for a jury to decide that maybe you made the whole story up. Why this juror thought the victim was lying, I really don't know. It's just too similar to Judy's earlier crime, in my opinion. Now, everyone says that Judy appeared very well and came off very nice during this trial. But basically, you're doing the exact same thing of grabbing a woman out of a car that you were just convicted for and got out of prison for four months ago. I don't care how well-mannered you are in the courtroom. I just think that this crime sounds just too similar to Judy's earlier crime, in my opinion, for him not to be guilty. I think he was 
definitely guilty of abducting this woman outside of the post office. And if the jury had any sense and convicted him, he might still have been in prison in 1978, not free. You know, not free to kill Terry and her little kids. Way to go, moron juror. That defendant who previously had been convicted of rape and diagnosed as a sexual psychopath and had just gotten out of prison for a violent assault where he attacked a lone woman in her car and now he stands before a jury accused of a very similar assault of a woman in her car? Well, he was a guilty piece of shit that you let go free. Anyway, now I want to talk about the, the victims of his final crime. That's Terry, Misty, Ann, Steve, and Mark. There isn't much information available on the family. And I know that Terry had divorced her husband two years before her death and her ex-husband faithfully attended Judy's trial. It was Terry's boyfriend, Jack Lane, who she had lived with along with her children for the last two and a half years that identified her in the children's bodies. And they had lived together for about you know, a little over two years. Jack was the head chef at the local Howard Johnson's. And I just really wish it was easier to find out information about Terry and her kids. It seems like over time, this information just disappears. And I don't have a budget to support newspapers.com premium because I don't have a budget because, you know, it's just me. But I would love to know more about Terry. I mean, just look at the numbers in her story. She died at 21, mother of three kids. The oldest was five, right there. Sounds like a teen mom. Misty Ann was buried under the last name Zollers, which is Terry's maiden name. And Terry's boyfriend at the time of her death explained that her ex-husband wasn't Misty's dad. And I think the boys may have been originally buried by Terry and Misty Ann, but were later moved somewhere else, maybe to be buried where their father was going to be buried. I'm not sure. This is like a graves.com. Figure it out. Do you trust it? Do you not? I don't know. So it's not really verified. And I'm not attacking anyone's character about someone being a teen mom or someone being different fathers to different kids. I mean, I couldn't give less of a poop about that. I'm just trying to say that she was only 21, but this lady had a lot more going on in her life when she was 21 than I did. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about her story because I think there is story there. But anyway. Okay. So back to Judy's final crime. Mushroom hunters find Terry's body. She is bound and naked with her pants pulled over her head. It appears that the scarf that was part of her work uniform was used to strangle her. The hunters immediately report their discovery and police her on the scene by around 9.30. This very quick discovery of the bodies helps in the apprehension of Steve Judy because a plea for information goes out on the Saturday evening news when everything from the morning is still fresh in the witnesses' minds. Judy didn't realize that someone had seen the red and silver truck with built-in utility boxes that he had borrowed from his stepfather, I'm sorry, foster father, that morning near the crime scene. A plea for anyone that saw anything that Saturday morning along the creek or where Terry's car was found, abandoned along I-465, was made on the afternoon news and again on the evening news. Steve and Judy's days of freedom were numbered. Two men contacted the police because on that Saturday morning, as each man drove along I-465, they had seen a man and a woman looking under the hood of a car. The witness noted a silver and red truck pulled over near the car. And during the trial, one of these witnesses would identify Stephen Judy as the man that he saw that day. But the most important witness of all was a 14-year-old boy named Eddie Williams. He was riding with his father when he saw Judy's truck parked near a bridge that crossed over White Lick Creek. And and Eddie had seen this truck before. So while we have people that saw Steve and Judy in his silver and red truck with the utility boxes by Terry Chastine's car, and there's people that saw Terry in his car 
trying to get help from other drivers. I'm sorry, I saw Terry in his truck trying to bring attention to other drivers to get help. But no one knows the man that she is with. And that's the power of Eddie Williams' testimony and his information. Because not only did he see that silver and red truck by the bridge by White Lick Creek, but he recognized that truck because of its unique paint job and built-in utility boxes. One afternoon while he was in school, in the classroom, Eddie got a little bit bored and his attention drifted to what was going on outside of the window. And he's looking out there and he sees there's construction going on. Someone is building a new home near the school. And one of the construction workers' vehicles was a silver and red truck with utility boxes built in. And Eddie recognizes that truck that he saw by the bridge as the truck he saw doing construction work on the newly built house by his school. Now, based on Eddie's tip, the police contacted the owner of that new built home where Eddie had seen the truck from his classroom window. The homeowner identified Judy's foster father, Bob Carr, as the owner of the truck. He had been hired to do some masonry work on the man's house. So Bob Carr was tracked down and the police determined it was Judy that had the truck that Saturday morning. And by Sunday evening, Stephen Judy was under arrest. Just one day after the murder, and mainly because a 14-year-old boy got bored in class. Because even though numerous people had seen the truck parked near the bridge and the truck pulled alongside Terry's car, it was young Eddie that tied the truck to a job site that led to Stephen Judy's identification. That's pretty impressive for a 14-year-old kid. Now, I read an account of Eddie's involvement in the apprehension and trial of Steve Judy that was written as a master's thesis by his older sister, Jean Fox. It was written in 2008, and Eddie um, had passed away suddenly before 2008, leaving a young family behind. And you can clearly, when reading this, tell how much that she misses her brother. And the paper was really a loving tribute from a sister to her brother. And you can really just tell how proud she was of him. And she was right, because it really was Eddie that pulled the case together. Without him, they would just have had a description of the truck and a vague description of Judy. It was Eddie that identified the exact truck leading to Judy's quick arrest. And Judy's quick arrest is important because this guy is not slowing down his role on assaulting women. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been years before they ever figured this out. It could have been never. But they found him the next day and they found Steve Judy because of Eddie Williams. Judy was a monster and any delay in his arrest would have allowed him to commit more crimes. That's how I look at it. Which he, I think he definitely would have. His foster family had decided to bail him out. He's out of jail for five days and he kills Terry. So five more days, what the hell could he have done in that time period? You just don't know. He's not safe to be around in society. I can say that. I will say at the least, I think somebody else could have been easily attacked. Now, Judy is arrested and he quickly and rather coldly confesses to the murders. It was reported that when Judy heard that he could get a 40-year sentence for each murder, he cried. Judy has only one chance at ever being a free man again and Judy's court-appointed attorney promptly files a plea of insanity. The standard for an insanity defense in 1979 in Indiana was whether, or I guess it would be 1978, in Indiana was whether a defendant understood the wrongfulness of his actions or whether the defendant lacked the, the capacity to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law when he committed the crime. So the first standard there, the wrongfulness of his actions, not understanding that, that's a pretty high standard to meet. You basically have to be delusional to not understand what you are doing is wrong. It's the second part, that the inability to conform one's conduct to their requirements of the law that worried people. And it should, because once a defendant proved that they were insane by a preponderance of the evidence, which is a low standard, it just means more likely than not, the defendant would be sent to a mental hospital. And if he was ever deemed that he'd been cured, he would be released. Just like what had happened when Steve Judy had raped that lady when he was 13 and the mental hospital decided 
that he had been cured. It's kind of like Ed Kemper. You know, he's a little bit, he's all better. <laughs> no, they're not. Keep them there. And the prosecution is worried. Judy had killed a mother and her three little kids. A jury might think that only an insane man would do that. And I want to note that insanity has, defense has changed in Indiana since this time. Um because they have added a finding of guilty but mentally ill as a choice at trial. And actually, the guilty but mentally ill ruling was adopted in response to Judy's crimes. Citizens were so worried that Judy would be found insane and released someday that the citizens, they united and lobbied for the passage of this new guilty but mentally ill holding, which really limits a defendant's ability to use this, the insanity defense to avoid criminal liability. Because if you are found guilty but mentally ill, the convicted person receives treatment. And if they are ever cured of their insanity, then they are jailed. So even though this has changed and it was a direct result of Steve and Judy and the public's fear that he was going to roam the streets free someday and this law was passed, uh, but it was passed, of course, after he committed his crimes. It was not a retroactive change in the law, so it wouldn't apply to Steve and Judy's case. So anyway... At the trial, the defense called a psychologist to testify that Judy had chronic emotional problems, to which I think we can all say, yeah, uh, duh. But the doctor went on to say that she believed that Judy was insane. And keep in mind, he had been in a mental hospital for years on end, and multiple times afterwards, he had been in and out. There was documentation to support that he had mental health issues. Definitely. But the question is, was he insane? To not understand the nature of your own actions, yes, that's a high threshold. I don't think anybody's arguing that Stephen Judy's condition meets that. But the lacking of the capacity to conform your conduct to the law, that's an awfully low standard to meet. And he might be able to meet that one because he can't have any period of time where he's not committing a crime. I mean, he's four months out of jail, out of prison, actually, for assaulting a woman, and he assaults another woman. Now he's five days out from being bailed out on a charge of um, armed robbery, and he kills a whole family. This guy is not conforming to the confines of the law. It's obvious. While his conduct is not conforming to the bounds of the law, is he incapable of being able to conform his conduct, I guess is the big question. So the, the issue, was Stephen Judy insane? I don't know. But in my opinion, he did something that no sane man would do. But also, I don't believe that he could be cured. And if he ever had the opportunity again, I think he would continue to hurt women and children who got in his way. The thought of a doctor determining that he was cured and setting him loose on the public, to me, is truly frightening. If I was on the jury, I would have found him guilty and not insane, just because I would want him locked up forever. I don't want this fucker to ever be just out and about. He is just too dangerous. Even if I think by the standards of the law in Indiana at that time, I think he might have met the, the, lower, the lower bar for insane. I think he might have met that. But you can't have this guy out and about in the streets. You can't have him prowling around because 10 days after he gets out, somebody else is going to be hurt. Well, it wasn't just me. The jury didn't want Judy to ever experience freedom again, and he was found guilty. Very quickly, things take an interesting turn, as Judy does everything he can to make sure he gets the death penalty. Now, this wasn't because he felt remorse. He never once apologized for what he had done, and he openly stated that he didn't regret the murders. Like I said, he was a real piece of shit. But the blonde pretty boy hadn't fared well when he was in jail before, so prison wasn't going to be easy on Judy. Remember that when he would... You know, Judy had been raped in jail and it, you know, made him angry. I mean, it didn't make him stop raping ladies, but it did make him realize that he'd rather be dead than endure that life. Yeah, I just want to say I don't support prison rape ever and I don't find humor in it. But if I had to pick someone to be assaulted, 
I would rather, I guess, it be Stephen Judy than anybody else. I mean, you can't find a more deserving person. No one lets me decide these kind of things. My point is, prison is terrible, and I think Judy would have rather been dead than in prison for the rest of his life, which really, truly speaks to just how awful prison is. Judy prohibited his attorneys from presenting any mitigating evidence during his sentencing phase. And to really seal the deal on the death penalty, Judy threatened the judge and the jurors. During sentencing, Judy told Judge Bowles, I honestly want you to give me the death penalty because one day I may get out. If you don't want another death hanging over your head, I think that's the only thing that you can do. Judy's attorney said that Judy wanted to ensure that he was sentenced to death by creating some type of scene in the courtroom, some type of outburst or something. The attorney reported that Judy actually told him that he was going to jump over the table and choke the prosecutor. Now, Judy's attorney told him that he shouldn't do that, that someone might shoot him, and it might actually be his own attorney that does it. Now, Judy asked his own attorney whether he could address the jurors directly. His lawyer told Judy to keep it clean. At this point, this is when Judy threatens the jury one by one, saying that he would come after the jurors and their families if he was ever released. Judy told the jury foreman, I know where you live and I know you have a daughter. Now, when the jury finally gets in the deliberations room, first, they quickly found him guilty. The decision on whether or not to give him the death penalty, that's a quick one too. So when they immediately get into the room, the foreman asks if they want to take a vote or if they want to discuss uh, you know, the options first, they decide to vote and immediately everybody's like, yep, we all want this guy dead. So, but the jury was like, we don't want to go out. Like we just came in here. We don't want to go out and be like death penalty, like 10 seconds after they went in the room. So they decided to, you know, just sit in the room and wait a while to try to make it look better. But ultimately Judy got what he wanted. He got the death penalty. In less than two years after he killed Terry, Miss Deanne, Stephen, and Mark, Stephen Judy was executed. Now, all defendants sentenced to death get automatic appeals, but Judy instructed his attorney that he wanted to be executed and he did not wish his sentence to be overturned. And as Judy awaited his execution, he opened up a little bit to his foster mother about some of his crimes, and he confessed to a, quote, string of rapes and murders across five states, Texas, Florida, Louisiana, Illinois, and Indiana. Judy's confessions contained only one named victim. The rest is just speculation. But Judy specifically told Mary that he had murdered Linda Unverzag. He had murdered Linda Unverzag, a 23-year-old mother of a three-year-old little girl named Amanda and a wife of a fireman. Linda lived in Indianapolis, Indiana, and she was a utility clerk at a telephone company. And on some evenings, she taught a disco dancing class. That sounds fun. On the night of November 3rd in 1978, little Amanda was dropped off at the babysitters so her mom could lead a dance class, but Linda never returned for her. Linda's body was found in the basement of an abandoned house the next day. Linda had been raped and strangled, just like Terry, Judy's only known adult victim. The detective that headed the investigation into Linda's death was 90% sure that Stephen Judy had murdered Linda. And I would be curious to learn if there was any DNA that could be tested to confirm this. But it does seem likely that Judy killed Linda. He confessed. And the attack was similar to that of Terry. Both women were raped and strangled. And get this, Judy's girlfriend told the police that Judy had taken her to the house where Linda's body was found just three days before Linda's remains were found there. So it looks like, you know, Judy had been scouting this place out as a potential place to dump a body. 
Judy had told the girlfriend that he was interested in buying the property, but really he was more interested in raping and murdering women in the basement. So, you know, a little bit of a liar there, you know, and a murderer. Sadly, from a, from a find a grave, it looks like Linda's husband died in 1989 at the age of 44, leaving Amanda orphaned at only 14 years old. That's really, that's tragic. Amanda had been told through most of her life that her mother had died in a car accident. But after her father died, she learned the truth that her mother had been murdered. And as an adult, Amanda wanted answers and she did public records requests in 2019. But I don't know if she got what she was looking for because Linda's murder is considered an open case. And often in open cases, records will not be released. I think they could close this case if they did a DNA um, testing against Steve and Judy potentially. But so hopefully DNA testing can be conducted because Linda deserves justice and Amanda deserves some answers. Now, Linda was the only victim that Judy specifically named, but he also told Mary that he had attacked two women in Louisiana. And Mary thought that this was likely what had happened in 1973 because during that year, that's when Steve and Judy lived in that area. I think he was living in New Orleans. Judy told his foster mother he had frequent urges to attack women because he considered them stupid and gullible. I mean, he really was the type of asshole that only a foster mother could love. When talking to his foster mother about his crimes, Judy explained that every woman he attacked, he raped. And every woman he ever bothered, he either tricked them into pulling over off the road or he started to help them as they were stopped on the road. So armchair detectives, or hell for that matter, actual detectives. Does anyone out there know of any cases where women were attacked and their cars were found abandoned along a roadway in any of these five states? in the mid to late 1970s. I think people could really research this kind of, like people have done with Israel Keys, to help identify the victims. You have the states, a time period, and his method of finding victims, women in cars. Judy was institutionalized in hospitals and jails frequently, so if the dates could be determined when he was incarcerated or confined, it could really narrow down the timeline. But also, here's where it gets extra tricky. Oftentimes, it seems like when he was in a mental institution, he will get weekend passes. So we have to calculate that into it. If you find out when he's in a mental institution, he still could be up to no good on a weekend because no one, I mean, even though he's a mental patient, you know, sexual psychopath, everybody needs a weekend, don't they? Oh, Lordy. Judy didn't go into detail about all of the murders he committed, but he did tell Mary that he killed two women in Louisiana. Mary, and like I said earlier, Mary thought that the Louisiana killings were in 1973 because that's when he was living in New Orleans. And Mary said that Judy may have murdered a third woman in Louisiana. She told a porter that Judy told her there was one he snatched and threw in the swamp after he raped her and he didn't know if she lived or died. Mary said that Judy may have murdered two other Indianapolis women after raping them in separate attacks. Judy told Mary that after raping one woman in 1978 in Indianapolis, he left his victim tied to a tree in a heavily wooded area and he didn't know whether she died or not. Oh my God, see what I'm talking about? Like this guy's like, it just, it just doesn't stop with him. So when Judy's arrested, he immediately became a suspect in the murder of 20 year old Ann Harmer. Anne was a junior majoring in theater at Indiana University when she went missing. Anne was an only child, and she had gone home to visit her family. Her father had died when Anne was little, but she was very close to her mother, and she was just doing, you know, a little family visit. And then she was going to return to, um, to college. 
on September 12, 1977, Anne said goodbye to her mom and set off to drive back to campus. Anne was supposed to call her mom when she arrived at school, and Anne's mother, she never got that call. Immediately, the police were alerted, and Anne's extended family began searching for her and posting flyers. Anne's car was found abandoned on the shoulder of State Road 75. The vehicle had overheated when the radiator ran out of water. Been there. The doors were locked and the hazard lights had been on until the car's battery died. Now, Anne's body was found five weeks later in a cornfield on October 18, 1977. Anne had been raped, bound and gagged, and strangled with a shoelace. Her hairbrush had been used to create a garrote along with the shoelace. And I want to tell you, strangling somebody with a shoelace is not easy. So this was a very violent death. You can immediately see how Stephen Judy would be a suspect in Anne's death. But records show that Judy was incarcerated in a Marion County jail on the day that Anne went missing. In fact, records show that he was likely in solitary confinement for part of that day because he had attempted to escape. Is there a chance that this fucker got out, did that, and went back in as an alibi? I don't know. I don't know if he had the brains for that or the ability to do that. And I don't know if people, when they escape from jail, if they sneak back in. I think that might just be movie shit. But seriously, the murder of Anne fits so perfectly with what Stephen Judy does. Woman's on the side of the road. He sees her. He likes what he sees. Judy's hurting her because that's what he does. I mean, it's it's always related to a car, it seems like. It always involves a rape. It seems like his method of, of death is strangulation. And that's what happened to Anne here. So I just feel like, oh my God, this matches up so much. But I mean, is there something that could be wrong with those records? Could it be something just be incorrect? I really would like to see that looked at, but not to say that they haven't looked at it you know, thoroughly, but I just feel like, oh my God, it just seems like him, right? I mean, you just can't get much a better alibi than being in jail when a crime occurred, but still I can't stop thinking that it could have been him. They have tried to extract DNA from various items of evidence, and it appears that technology needs to advance a little further before testing can be done. So, the, you know, this is something, it's, they're working on this case, Anne's case, because it was such a big deal at the time. She has a cousin that really keeps the, the case alive with um, pursuing it with the police and seeing what's being done, and you know, always see, because technology is always changing and advancing, and he's very on top of making sure that they're always using these new, you know, the new methods that we have to um, see if we can ever solve this case. And he has a Facebook page dedicated to Anne and solving her murder as well. Now, Anne's mom died within six years of her daughter and her only child's death had taken a really heavy toll on her mother. The cousin I was talking about, his name's Scott Burnham, and he's really keeping the case out in the media because Anne doesn't have any immediate family left. Both of her parents are deceased and she had no siblings. So some, you know, I think it's very sweet and very noble that she had a cousin that was willing to step up and do this for her, you know, for her memory and for, for justice for Anne, because this is something that's definitely solvable and um, hopefully someday it will be. And I'm just curious to see if when we find this out, if it comes back to be Steve and Judy. I mean, it might not. Who knows? It could be some other monster. They're, they're out there. We'll just see how it unfolds. It'll be, I'm very curious to see if DNA would implicate Steve and Judy or if it's some other complete random asshole. Okay. So Steve and Judy had told his attorney that he had other victims and he promised to leave the attorney a written confession to all of his crimes before he was executed. Now, execution day rolls around and Judy handed his attorney an envelope stuffed with multiple sheets of paper and he told his lawyer to wait until after the execution to read the contents and the lawyer is like can feel this envelope he's like oh oh there's a lot of paper in here like this is stuffed with 
the details of his crime. Like this is going to solve a lot of unsolved cases and it may even solve solved cases where somebody else is wrongly incarcerated. Like this information is powerful and it's going to help the law enforcement. It's going to help victims' families and it might even help innocent people wrongly accused. Now, after the execution, the attorney opens the envelope and the first sheet of paper read, I'm sorry, Steve, that's the attorney's name, but also, you know, Steve and Judy's name. But anyway, so it says, I'm sorry, Steve, but I've decided to handle it this way because I care too much for my foster mom and family. I hope you can understand. Thank you for all you've done for me. And then Judy signed his name to the note. All of the remaining pages were blank, but that fucker still put those blank pages in to make this lawyer think that he was holding in his hand a real confession to multiple crimes. Oh God, what an ass wipe. Okay, the lawyer's response was that little son of a bitch. Agreed, okay? That's like the nicest thing you could say about Stephen Judy. Stephen Judy confessed to raping between 13 and 15 women. We have no idea how many of these women he killed, but we do know he told his foster mother that he found his victims by acting like a good Samaritan, by either tricking a woman into thinking that she had a car problem and offering to help, or offering to help a lady that's car had actually broken down. Judy seems like mostly what we know about him, it looks like he killed by strangulation, but also he was known to carry a knife and he did do that armed robbery where he had a gun. But in his known crime with Terry, he strangled her. So, and he strangled her and he used the scarf from her uniform. I actually don't always believe that killers have to always use the same method of how they murder people. Like Richard Ramirez, he switched it up all the time. And I think this idea that someone always strangles, someone always uses a knife, someone always uses a gun. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think someone that wants to kill will find a way to do it. If they don't have all the tools necessary, then they improvise, you know? It's like the ax man of old times. You just grab somebody's ax and kill them. So I think he would strangle. I think, I don't know. I think he'd probably knife somebody or shoot somebody too. He needed to. But I also think he would just abandon somebody in a in an area where they couldn't get out of and that could lead to their death. You know, how he left that woman tied to a tree. I mean, was she ever found? Did she get free? And we're just like, fuck, I'm free. Woo. Or, you know, the woman thrown in a swamp and she was still alive. So I think, I think this guy's terrible is all I'm going to say. I was just going to say, I just don't want to get bogged down thinking, oh, he only strangles people because who the hell knows. But we can say, you know, he gets people out of cars, seems to strangle or seems to abandon women in situations they can't get out of. And I think, oh yes, because Linda that was in the basement in Indianapolis, she had also been strangled. So yeah, I, I think we can say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm emphasizing strangulation here so much, but I think we can say that might be his most common method. He was active between 1971 and 1979 in Indiana, Texas, Louisiana, Illinois, and Florida. And I think it is entirely possible that there are cold cases that could be linked to Judy. Or as Mary Carr feared, was somebody else convicted of a murder that Stephen Judy committed. This guy's like Ted Bundy without all the details. Yeah, well, I guess we're done with Stephen Judy. Unless we can, I mean, I went through like the unsolved things and um, does and things like that of different people in different states. The one I thought maybe Amy Billig, she went missing from Florida in the late seventies and she was you know, walking along a highway when she went missing. So I wonder about that one. She, was, she wasn't in a vehicle, she was walking, but still, I could see him grabbing somebody who's just walking along a roadway. Also, I thought, he said Texas, and he grabbed women with, from cars. I thought of the, the Fort Worth Three. You know, they were taken, we don't know where they're taken from, but they were at a mall in Fort Worth. Their car was found parked outside the Sears. I would be really interested to know when they found that car, if they were able to immediately start it, or if it had been tampered with, that he had moved to Texas 
with his girlfriend briefly. Now, I don't know what time of year he lived down in Texas, but that is the same year that Fort Worth 3 went missing. You know, did he see them get out of that car? Saw something he liked? That Rachel was a very pretty girl. I could see him, Stephen Judy, definitely um, going after her. And, you know, once they go in the mall, pull something out of that car, you know, so the car won't start and take them. I just don't know. But... I do know in that case, and one thing that makes me think it wouldn't be Stephen Judy was the letter that was sent to Rachel's husband that he got in the mail. I don't think Stephen Judy would have done that. But, I mean, who the hell knows? Maybe he would have. But I'm just saying he's in Texas, and he's the type of asshole that grabs up gals all over the place. He would have been willing to do it. It's just whether he did it. Okay, so, but that's the thing. Like, you can start thinking about these, and I'm going to say most likely it probably isn't the Fort Worth 3. It probably isn't Amy Billig. It's probably more unknown cases or lesser known or cases that are known more just regionally. But um, I could see maybe not confessing to those cases, why he wouldn't specifically name those ones, because they were b both so famous of cases, and also they involved underage girls going missing and that would have definitely delayed his execution. And I don't think he was willing to do anything that would have delayed his execution. So I don't know, just, you know, snowball out there, people. And um, we can talk about it on Facebook. We have a page now, the second location. I think I'll probably post unresolved mysteries on Reddit about this and see what, see if we can get people talking. All right. All right. You know, I'll be back later with yet another horrific episode of crime and murder. Ugh.